usually it's it's me and a group of three and we get sort of transported by helicopters into remote areas that we pick out you know on a map and it's certainly the definition of wilderness there's nothing out there and set up just a typical campsite so you know lightweight tents small stoves So this is Tim, Tim Gibson. Tim has spent the last four summers in a place called Baffin Island, which is an island north of Canada and within the Arctic Circle. And we spend maybe a week at each individual camp. Lots of them are along these beautiful, dramatic sea cliffs exposed right on the Arctic Ocean. So, you know, we see whales swimming around and icebergs and polar bears. We haven't had any polar bear encounters, which... Uh, I'm grateful for it. It would be great to see them. But we have seen polar bear prints in a number of places, and they are 40. I mean, they in my memory, they're like 40 or 50 centimeters. But I'm <laughs> grateful we haven't seen any yet. But Tim wasn't there for a camping trip or a holiday. He was there looking for a fossil. For these particular fossils, the way they're preserved, they're in a, a rock type that's called chert, which is like flint. And so you actually cut the rock with a saw and you make thin sections and you just more or less look for fossils and as you can imagine pretty hard to see they're like approximately this similar diameter as like a hair but tim wasn't looking for just any fossil he was looking for one called bangiomorpha pubescens bangiomorphin pubescens and the fossil sort of stands out because it's the first evidence in the fossil record of a complex organism that was photosynthetic Tim is looking for the fossil of an algae that would be the first of its kind to photosynthesize, meaning this algae could be the organism responsible for enabling plants, trees, animals, and humans, us, to live and breathe on this planet. Welcome to Think Sustainability, a show where we navigate through some of the biggest environmental issues of our time and take a closer look at the technologies, the movements and efforts moving us forward towards a more sustainable future. Today, though, we're going to jump back a bit, a little bit, a couple billion years, to the origins of photosynthesis. As biological organisms that require oxygen to survive, we need things to produce oxygen, and the only things that are going to do that for us are the photosynthetic organisms, plants, algae, corals. Without photosynthesizers, without the primary producers, you know, we don't have life on Earth. This is David Suggett from the University of Technology, Sydney. David's into coral reefs, photosynthesis, and generally life on Earth. His words. There's a hypothesis called the serial endosymbiotic evolution hypothesis and the idea behind this is just how over time microbes have basically kind of merged together cherry-picked the machinery that's working best for them to succeed david explains that photosynthesis was a means of evolution organisms weren't thinking about cohabitating with humans however many billion years down the track it was something that happened naturally and just ended up working in our favor Why photosynthesis began, we still don't know for sure. However, we do know when. 
Photosynthesis began somewhere between 3 and 2.4 billion years ago. And this date, although contested, does have a name, which is called, back to Tim, the Great Oxidation Event. This was the first pulse of free oxygen into the atmosphere, which is believed to have come from a single-celled organism known as an oceanic cyanobacteria. But this doesn't mean this point is where photosynthesis all of a sudden kicked off, producing enough oxygen to make the planet inhabitable. Actually, shortly after the Great Oxidation Event, the world would just stop what it was doing and went into a stasis for a billion years, a period known as the Boring Billion. Does that just mean there was like a billion years where like nothing was really going on? You know, there's been debate whether that was actually the case in the way you phrase it, or perhaps it's actually just a period of time that's not well represented by rocks. I think that lag may have simply been the amount of time it took for photosynthesis to sort of be transferred into more complex organisms. And this takes us back to what Tim originally found on Baffin Island. The fossil sort of stands out because it's the first evidence in the fossil record of a complex organism that was photosynthetic. The Bangiomorphin pubescence, let's call it BP from this point, was a pioneer, but it was also a thief. They stole it from bacteria. BP engulfed a single-celled bacteria, and when it did that, BP then had new powers lodged into its genetic code to extract energy from the sun. This all sounds very exciting and fast, but keep in mind what we were saying before. This took nearly a billion years for these complex multicellular organisms to practice photosynthesis. It then passed that genetic code on to all of its offspring, and that genetic code is the same through all of the plant kingdom today. Across the planet? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, across many, many species. But in this research project, Tim found something else that he didn't expect, which kind of threw a spanner in the works. By digging up these fossilised algae, BPs, along the sea cliffs of Baffin Island, dating them, they found these algae to be active smack bang in the middle of the Boring Billion. It sort of raises questions about the idea that maybe... The boring billion wasn't actually so boring, or maybe the entire interval was not, but we just haven't yet found some of the interesting things that were going on at that time. It seems like a pretty big line to draw to be like, well, this entire period was boring when you have potentially discovered something which shows it to be not only not boring, but resulted in the plant kingdom that we know today. Like, that's pretty big. Right, but it it does raise the question, you know, if the boring billion holds up as being boring, what took so long for them to proliferate? Alternately, if it was boring, we're going to have to start thinking about ways to explain if algae existed, why they didn't immediately sort of take over the planet's ecosystem. I remember as a kid, I had this weird irrational fear that we would just run out of trees, (laughs) like the earth would run out of trees because we're chopping them all down. Mm -hmm. 
But if we do continue to chop things down, we are decimating the planet of these photosynthesizers. Correct. Is that is that a possibility that we could just eradicate everything and then there would be no organisms actually producing oxygen for us? It's, it's a good question. I, and I think, you know, that that's certainly looking at, at a very distant future, I hope. The thing we have to remember is that wherever there is light on Earth, there are photosynthetic organisms. So if we remove say trees and you know that's the predominant niche in the terrestrial systems would something else photosynthetic and abundant replace that so would we still have the same what we would say kind of functional group of organisms photosynthesizers but something completely different in in its place so we've been playing these kind of games actually in terms of the oceans where we we radically change the environment in the lab and we basically look at who's favored under those conditions there's always a photosynthetic organism that thrives if there's light. But you, you change the nutrients, you change the CO2, you change the temperature, something better is tuned to grow under those conditions but still use light. So it's likely we'll always have oxygen because it's been such a successful evolutionary strategy for you know all life on Earth that, that requires light. There are a lot of things we know about photosynthesis. You know, something happened on the Earth to suddenly microbes to realise, hey, we have sunlight and photosynthesis evolved. And a lot of things we don't. There's still a lot of really fundamental questions to be answered up there. But almost always is the case with humans. You give them an inch and they'll take a mile. But I'm not saying this is a bad thing because those running with what we already know about photosynthesis are taking us in a direction we've never been before. Coming up next, how photosynthesis research could help us tackle some of our biggest environmental challenges today. There's a day on our calendar that comes around nearly every year. It's not exactly a celebration, it's not a distant cousin's birthday that you hop along to every second year. This day, it's essentially a calculator. Earth Overshoot Day is a date on our calendar that shows our consumption of natural resources outweighs the capacity that Earth is able to regenerate those resources. Over the past decade, our Earth Overshoot Day has crept up earlier and earlier in the year. A decade ago, it was in December. Last year, it was August 2nd. Some don't like the idea of EOD, but others say it's a good reminder that Earth Overshoot Day is coming, and that it puts a timestamp on what we're doing, and how little time we have to turn things around. And it's this idea that brings us back to photosynthesis. And so in a sense, we're fast-tracking ecological evolution. And how humans, just like the BP did to the cyanobacteria, are hijacking photosynthesis in a practice called artificial photosynthesis. I actually looked and... The term artificial photosynthesis was actually coined maybe about a century ago. That's right, yeah. And so 
that person was、mm-hmm. pretty preemptive. <laughs> if we hadn't even really、yeah. considered climate change as a prospect, I mean that's a that's a that's a great sort of fact that you've picked up on. Is you know why are we still asking this question a hundred years later about whether we should do it? I think most of us would agree that it, it has to be done. But you know, plants have obviously done this for millions and millions of years to do this, and we're trying to do it. Over you know a year or ten years, and so in a sense we're fast tracking ecological evolution. But this practice, it's not that easy. No, no, it's well, I don't think so. So this is Robin. Hi,、um, my name is Dr. Robin Purchase, and I work at the Research School of Chemistry at the Australian National University. Robin is part of a research school that are trying to replicate photosynthesis, meaning mimic the process of how plants take energy from the sun in a chemical environment in the lab. And she says it's a challenge. There's a lot of absolutely mind-boggling things that nature can do that, frankly, we haven't a clue how it does it. Splitting of water into oxygen and hydrogen. Nature does this at room temperature. At standard atmospheric pressure, and before we can artificially create something, we have to understand what's happening naturally, and that's what Robin is doing: figuring out which parts of the plant absorb sunlight. One of the things which absolutely fascinates me in all of this business is that if you look at them really closely, the chlorophyll molecules that harvest light and the chlorophyll molecules that separate charges. Separating charges means splitting up the chemicals, the hydrogen, CO two, oxygen. Ultimately, how the plant ends up producing oxygen are essentially indistinguishable from each other,、um, and yet they perform two very different functions. But the true end goal here is what we can do with all this information. To produce the things we need—hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen—these chemicals are what we're after, and from there we can look at applying those into real-time technologies. And Robin says one of the biggest things artificial photosynthesis could help us solve is the issue of food security. I think one of the、uh, advantages of artificial photosynthesis is that you can disconnect fuel production. From food production, as the fuel industry slowly turns toward greening up its practices, the competition for land has pitted the biofuel and food industries against one another. Corn or sugarcane is one of the biggest methods to produce biofuels, and is just one cause of tension here because, well, we could be using that land to produce corn for us to eat. But Robin says this is where artificial photosynthesis could come in. An area which is being eyed off in Australia is is northwestern Australia,、um, where there's not much in the way of food production going on there. But you could look at doing artificial photosynthesis there. I mean, because we've got certain bits of land which are high quality arable land that have all the right nutrients in the soil, get sufficient climatic conditions, have the right rainfall, soil moisture, which are ideal for growing crops. And there are other bits of the country which are not. So suitable for growing crops, and it's those then which we should perhaps think about for using fuel production, so that it doesn't compete with food production. And speaking of fuel, so you can think about scenarios like, say, having a hydrogen-powered car in your garage, having your house covered in artificial photosynthesis, and producing your own fuel to drive your own car, which yeah, absolutely does not compete with with food production anymore, and brings people closer to their fuel production. 
makes them more conscious of it. Yeah, exactly. Because I believe, I mean, this is something you've seen with the, the rollout of solar cells is that people who have solar cells tend to monitor how much electricity they're producing, become very conscious of what they're using, and you, you sort of see this mentality change in people. And I think with artificial photosynthesis on the longer term, there is the, the opportunity to introduce similar things with the fuel market, which I think would be quite exciting. I kind of like to think of it in a way that, in a tongue-in-cheek way, the world is kind of saying to us, or the natural environment is saying to us, well, I told you so, you should have been looking here in the first place. Yes, yeah, I think you're right. And I think, you know, in terms of things like artificial photosynthesis, there are just so many gains. If we could stop burning fossil fuels for our energy needs, the planet would be far better off. It's just this weird timeline. Yep. Or I think perhaps a story that echoes what humanity yeah. is and what we do, understanding something and then try, kind of just banking on it yeah. and then finding a way to use it in our benefit. Well, you've, you've hit the nail on the head. We've become the organism that's manipulated our environment to become more successful. I think we're the only organism really to do that to, to that effect. And so you're right, is photosynthesis is a fantastic example of how that's playing out, is that you know, life on Earth has, has basically evolved through photosynthesis to enable us to, to live, survive and thrive. But now, in order for us to keep thriving, we're having to improve and fast-track photosynthesis which is kind of a sad state to be in, in, in effect. How do you feel about the morality of that? <laughs> I, like, I think, you know, I'm yeah. like, we're yeah. at so many different random tipping points mm-hmm. now, ecologically yeah. and environmentally. You know, morally, ethically, you know, th- these are challenging conversations to, to have and to, to think about for sure. And, you know, again, you sort of come back to this, this idea that, you know, we're in a situation where we have too many people on planet earth to survive with the resources we have so that's problem number one we have to deal with but in the meantime while we have that problem is how do we ensure human health viability sustainability and so i'm hoping in a sense that some of these these ideas where we're having to really think about engineering plants algae to survive is a short-term goal so that we can really solve the bigger question, which is population growth and sustainability. That's it for Think Sustainability today. If you like the show and aren't already, don't forget to subscribe. We are available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You just have to search for Think Sustainability. For more information, that's at 2ser.com forward slash Think Sustainability. This show is made possible with the support of the University of Technology Sydney, 2SER Radio, and is heard around Australia via the Community Radio Network. I'm Jake Morecambe, and I'll catch you next time.